Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and I've got an, a cool guest on again today with a specific topic in mind I think that we're going to cover on, but who have I got on the podcast today? Axel Donaldson, PJ Professional in Perth, Western Australia. Mate, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate your time. Um, it's been a fair time since I've caught up with you, so it's good to be able to get you on in this forum and have a chat about your coaching. Um, but for those that don't have your background story, can you give us a bit of a background on you? Yeah, so um, started golf maybe 14 or 15 years old, joined a, a private club here in Perth, um, uh, excelled pretty quickly, just trying to catch up to all my peers, uh, scratch handicap. Then I kind of um, won a couple of amateur events, um, decided to do my golf apprenticeship uh, or traineeship at 21 years old. Um, probably like a lot of people, it's like, I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, um, but I like golf and I'm okay at golf and I don't really have any skill sets or um, uh diplomas and anything else so i so when i did that did the three years um was still primarily focused on playing um i really enjoyed playing um but i suppose like many others as well you kind of do your three years and you're working 50 plus hours a week in the industry you kind of don't really get as much time to practice and your game probably goes backwards a little bit um so then i finished the three years uh, went to tour school Ugh. Yeah, didn't didn't make didn't make um, anything significant. So then it's kind of like, what do I do now? Started doing some coaching at my club. Um, started to enjoy that. I moved to uh, to Queenstown, New Zealand, for a couple of years. Just really random. My friend was over there. I didn't have any commitments over here. Um, so working at a golf course, not too many coaches there. So I started coaching more and more and more. Um, started really getting involved in more of the junior program there which i've always kind of dabbled in um but then started doing four five six seven classes a week um because no one else was doing that in the area um decided to come back to perth because queenstown was way too cold in the middle of winter like minus <laughs> 10 or 15 overnight uh, and snowboarding is cool but you don't want to live in a place like that where the golf course shuts down in winter as well um so then i uh, came back to perth um Got a job at a, a local um, private club. Started to, to do more and more kids, but it was because it was private. You're not going to see as much kind of new foot traffic. Um, so then I got the opportunity um, with a fellow Keller, a colleague, um, Kerry Gray, at the Dunlop Resort. So it's a 27-hole championship course. Um, great practice facility. Um, so then kind of went all gangbusters with junior programming just there. Um, and kind of flash forward now. About four and a half years later, I've got probably 160, 170 kids coming every single week. I do it four afternoons and one full day on a weekend. Um, so it might be like 16 or 17 classes a week um, that I'm doing each and every week. Uh, 40 weeks of the year, kind of get that school teacher's schedule, which is which is kind of good. Um, so I get plenty of time off. It's all unpaid as a contractor, um, which is still fine. Um, and then, yeah, over the last maybe couple of years, I've um, realised there's a bit of a kind of gap in the market and in, in certainly in Australia with like really comprehensive and quality junior programming resources. Um, everyone kind of has their own 
few tools that they utilize, um, but then if they're any good at what they do, especially in the junior golf space, they uh, when another job comes along, they tend to take their stuff with them, which is which is understandable. Um, and I feel it kind of leaves the, the facilities high and dry a little bit. So I'm trying to, uh, yeah, empower the, the facilities with some, some programming and marketing resources that they can utilize. Um, and then also kind of designing uh, kind of golf games for more grassroots stuff. So a lot of the stuff I do is is definitely more targeted towards the grassroots, the kids that don't mind coming to the golf course, but they're not little flushes um, and just kind of trying to dangle a carrot in front of their face for as long as possible until they really maybe love golf the way that we love golf. Um, so yeah, so now pretty much just doing my thing with the um, the uh, the Junior Academy at Joondal up there, but then also just kind of, yeah, reaching out to other facilities and coaches if they need any support in that space. Awesome. Sounds really cool. And we're certainly going to touch on most of those topics, but I'm just curious why a guy from Perth went to Queenstown. What were you thinking? It must have been a huge culture shock going from the sunshine in Perth to the freezing cold over there. Yeah, well, I um, yeah, I think I was kind of doing like the typical like post-traineeship like lull like you don't know what you want to do and i was kind of working maybe 20 hours casually a few lessons just flip-flopping um 24 25 years old didn't have a partner didn't really have anything locked me down and then a mate um was over there and he had a job and he's like oh there's a job here like why don't you come across like what's stopping you um so i just um pulled up stumps and i was i'd go do it for six months kind of thing see what it's like um and it was yeah, it definitely wasn't the most glamorous facility. It's it's like nine hole public access course where the first hole is like a fifty meter par three, and if you like, if you pull hook a sand wedge, it's on the road. So it was like, <laughs> it was like the most dangerous par three course uh, you've ever seen in your life, right next to the Queenstown Airport. Um, but it had a driving range and the quality driving range balls and undercover area, which any of the other facilities in the area didn't have that. Um, so it was small scale, like it's New Zealand is a relatively low um, population kind of farming country. Um, so I wasn't seeing massive numbers, but it allowed me to kind of, I don't know, see a little bit of the world and then kind of sink my teeth into coaching because no one was really doing it. And uh, as you probably do when you're 25 and no commitments, I was just going out in a party town every night of the week. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I got that out of my system pretty quick. Ah, that's 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 good, and it's it, it's strange sometimes too, though, because like I've, I've obviously been in the coaching game for a long time now, and you've coached I've coached at different different setups, and sometimes they can surprise you. Like you obviously, at a, I've been at public courses where I've sold heaps of custom fitted golf clubs, and I've been at some private clubs where you don't sell equipment and it's hard to actually get people to have some coaching so it can be hard sometimes and sometimes being in that space where it's a bit challenging can get you to think outside the square a bit so that's that's pretty cool yeah i think like anything it's um it's really up to the person like the environment does shape it and give you less or more opportunities but um yeah if you're driven enough and you're definitely if you start to specialize with something enough i think you can realize you don't need as many people as you may think um and then yeah, you start to kind of differentiate yourself from from others around you. 
Exactly right. So just before we get into the junior stuff, because that's where we're going to spend uh, a fair chunk of time on this podcast, I think he's talking about your junior programs because you've done an awesome job in setting that up. And I'm curious because you played some state golf back when you were you were playing. So I'm curious about what coaching was like um, over there in Perth in that state-based coaching setup. Um, yeah, so certainly in WA, it's um, there's a lot of good players that keep getting pumped out, and obviously Min Wu is playing well now and playing in the Masters tomorrow. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely much harder over here because there isn't like the population, because there isn't consistent seventy-two hole stroke play events like we kind of see over in kind of Melbourne and New South Wales consistently. So I remember when I was doing amateur golf maybe every second or third weekend there'd be a 36-hole stroke play event. Um, and because the less population, less golfers, obviously the, the fields aren't as deep. So, like, you might shoot three or four under and you may win the tournament for 36 holes. Um, so it's good that you can win an event, but then it's also, um, I suppose, a bit of insight to, like, um, over in the east, you probably wouldn't even – you probably barely made a cut. Um so, but yeah, so I was at a private course. There was four or five PJ members there. Um, so it was kind of good because I was, I had a primary coach. Um, that's um, Neil Simpson, who's um, Nico Hearn's uh, uh, yeah. probably lifelong coach, if you want to call him that. Um, so Nico Hearn was, is, is from Mount Lawley Golf Club as well. Um, it didn't seem too much because he was obviously playing at the peak of the PGA Tour, whatever year that was. Um, but my Neil was my main coach for a long time when I started as a junior and and definitely uh, kind of a uh, old school coach where he wasn't really getting the video camera out too much and it was more just kind of managing your game and understanding your patterns and tendencies um, and just how to play the game a little bit. Um, but then there was other coaches there which had different philosophies. So maybe when I was doing it, you get a bit analysis through was it paralysis through analysis talking to these different coaches but i think it kind of gave me an opportunity for different insights as to there's more than one way to get it done and and certainly from a coaching perspective it's kind of yeah it's more about the the student than maybe how much the coach knows or or doesn't know so i um yeah got all my coaches just from from there but but like um many i suppose amateurs then all of a sudden you you're thrown into the state teams and then state coaches, um, and they're trying to be as, I suppose, independent as possible and not push too much agendas, but then you just have conversations. So I saw, for, saw a few of those throughout the time. Um, but I, I think I did two interstate series um, for when the Colts was, the last two years of the Colts, the under-21s, just before that finished up, um, which was good. Um, but, yeah, I probably realized that the players ahead of me were were significantly better and might have been in a better financial position to pursue it a little bit easier so it kind of made my decision easier which is a good thing sometimes it's certainly hard trying to be uh, a tour player you've got to be so good as a player and then have that cash behind you as well it can be hard to um to turn into a to a tour player out there it's tough yeah especially in australasia it's um regardless of the last couple of years it's um yeah yeah the, the cost is is not the same as like a european tour of course but it's still probably within 60 percent of what it's going to be and then the prize purses are probably yeah a tenth yeah exactly right it's um it's it's pretty tough 
tough lifestyle. So um, as a fairly recent trainee program person going through the program, I'm curious on your thoughts on the trainee program and how you found that because um, you probably got a bit of a different experience of it because you're over in over in Perth. You didn't have the – you probably only had a handful of people going through the program at the same time as you in your own state. You would have had obviously other other people from other states doing it. But I'm just curious on your thoughts on the trainee program. Yeah, it was really good. Like it's um... – I think, yeah, sometimes when it's a bit kind of smaller and a bit more tight-knit, you kind of, uh, you're able to maybe get more out of it because you can you can talk to your state manager more often um, and you kind of know everyone. Where I know I talked to a few people when I went and played the, uh, maybe that Futures Championship over in um, New South Wales or the, the National Championship. Um, a couple of guys in Victoria New South Wales would be like one of 100 people on a, on a trainee day. Um, so yeah, you just kind of maybe slip through the cracks a little bit. Um, so we would have maybe 15 to 20, um, trainees on any given Monday. So yeah, about 20, 20 trainees on a Monday, which was kind of good. So four or five groups, um, because everyone would finish within like a 45 minute window would all kind of have, have lunch afterwards and everyone kind of talk to each other, would hang out quite a fair bit. Um, when I started my traineeship in 2013, I think that was the first year of the fairway. So it was the first year it went digital. Um, so there was a few bugs and stuff, but it was it was pretty pretty good. Um, so that was um, that was okay. Like I, I kind of said, a lot of people. I don't think any individual aspect of the traineeship is hard, but I just think a lot of it's time consuming. And then when you combine all of those things, because when I did it, it was mandatory 40 hours. I know it's not. The same now and there was also a mandatory amount of rounds per year uh, which i know has changed over the years um, and then you couldn't you had to do that every single year um, which is good and bad um, but yeah you combine all of those things that you need to do on any given week and it might be 60 or 70 hours so so yeah nothing nothing was hard but it's just um, just a lot a lot of time required each and every week um, but I do remember, I don't know what it's like now, but I remember <laughs> when we were doing some of the assignments on Fairway and there was like a lot of mo- multiple choice and it was like A, B, C, D or like F, it's like all of the above. I just remember like all of us talking and it was like, anytime it's a multiple choice, it's always F, all of the above, like every single time. So that was a bit of a life hack for us. Um, but yeah, no, it was good. Um, I think... Uh, I always thought it was a bit broad uh, in terms of the information they give you. And I, and I had a few conversations with the PGA about it and they're like, well, it, it kind of has to be broad because you've got to give everyone a little bit of exposure into everything, um, which I don't disagree with, but I suppose it's kind of like, do you want everyone at the back end once they're finished to have a broad knowledge on lots of things or do you want people to have a specialization once they're done? And I know probably not due to any conversation I've had over the years, but I know they've started to specialise a little bit in their third year, which I think is which is really good because you go to uni, not that I did, but you'd have generic subjects uh, or, um, uh, yes, yeah, subjects um, uh, for the first couple of years and then you start to specialise because you can't just get a diploma in everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, no, so it was pretty good. Um, I think it was probably the perfect timing for me based on the playing background and then... Um, and well, I think like anything, you always have a regret that you never actually applied yourself when you were there doing it. Um, but I think 
sometimes it probably doesn't really matter how much you apply yourself in the early stages of stuff because like it's more like the ongoing education and pursuit after i think a little bit yeah i think it's it's a hard it's a hard space to be involved with because as you said i think the it, the golf industry's changed so much it's gone past the head pro being everything head pro being the one that does the club repairs and has the pro shop and does the coaching and then goes and plays with the golfers as well they're all they're all different roles now so i think that that specialization is where golf needs to go and i think we are on the right track with some of the the training the trainees get now when they're coming through they get that chance to specialize um and it can be hard too though because if you're forced to to choose a specialization that's say 21 22 years of age and then 10 years down the track you go well hang on a sec i'm probably suited to be behind the counter now rather than coaching and you've chosen a certain specialization it can be hard to to choose correctly so to speak early on yeah definitely but i think now with like well, obviously the internet's been around for a long time now but it's pretty easy to learn stuff now it's pretty easy to like yeah. find information um so and you can get online diplomas for stuff through like TAFE or tertiary education places so it's like sure like it's not ideal that you may go down the wrong rabbit hole too early but the way that i kind of look at things is um i uh i am where i am now not because i knew i wanted to do this but i knew what i didn't want to do so i just tried a whole lot of things and i was like well that sucked and i didn't like that and i didn't like that and and maybe if you related to the golf industry i really don't like club fitting i really don't like standing behind a pro shop i don't like golf ops um so then it's kind of like private lessons i i enjoy them at times but i prefer the group model and then um so then yeah all of a sudden you just start narrowing down on all the stuff you don't like and whatever's left and you're like why well, I, I do love it but it's kind of one of those things it's like well i just don't hate it as much as the other stuff which is not a, not a good exact like it's not a good portrayal of what it is but then eventually it's like it's hard to really know if you like something if you're not very good at it as well like especially with junior golfers like oh how do you know if you like golf it's like most of the time people are going to like something because they're good at it so when you talk about your career it's kind of like oh i don't know if i like coaching yet because maybe i'm not good at it to continue to enjoy it like i could so um so yeah so i kind of just um yeah tried a lot of stuff and then what do you like the most with whatever's left? Yeah, it makes sense. You said that you, you're, you're into that group-type coaching setup as opposed to private lessons. So obviously, junior coaching lends itself pretty easily to that type of coaching setup. So talk me through what your junior coaching looked like early on, and then we can kind of get to how it's evolved and changed as you've gone through. So tell me about those first few junior programs you set up and how they tended to look. Yeah, probably exactly like you would expect and exactly like you would uh, probably have been taught um, with lining them up on the driving range, lining up on the chipping green, uh, making sure they've all got their balls ready to go in certain spaces for safety reasons. Um, but regardless of the age, regardless of the skill level, it's kind of like here's the here's a how to hold a club. If you hold the club this way, you've got a greater chance of hitting the ball straight. Don't you all want to hit the ball straight? I want to hit the ball straight. So then it's just maybe <laughs> just an assumption why everyone's there. Um, 
And then, yeah, you just like a 60 minute lesson. I don't know, eight, 10 kids in a class, pretty, pretty um, generic kind of things. Um, and then, yeah, I'd probably just focus on, yeah, like golf technique and skills. Um, and some kids get it because they're super skillful and great hand eye, like we, we've always seen. And then some kids dribble along the ground for the entire class and some don't care, some do care and they got tears. And then, um, yeah, like it was pretty, like I get the pool noodles out and they'd chip over the pool noodles or get some cones, get some of those uh, eye line radius things, whatever they're called, and putt into the circle. And if you make it, you go further back. Um, but then, yeah, what I started to realize a little bit was if you're good at it, you're good at it. And if you're not good at it, you're really not good at it. So then it started to separate the the good kids and the, and the, the not so good kids, um, which I think is good for the good kids, but it's also not good for the kids that are not very good. So then like if they can't do it and they feel like they're the only person in the class that can't do it, why would they sign up no matter how passionate I am as a coach to help them get better? Sometimes it's just maybe this is just not the thing that they're going to be really good at doesn't mean that it's the not the thing that they can enjoy even though they're not very good at it like a social aspect um so yeah and then i just realized that yeah the best player would I'll set a challenge or a game or whatever you want to call it and the best kid would almost always win unless they got super unlucky and then i'd start to like try to make it a bit fairer so you'd get the kid that's a beginner or, or not not as skilled and he would go closer or he'd get more chances and the, the kid that's good he'd go further back but it's it's not really like it's super obvious like everyone knows what's happening so when you make it so easy for the beginner kid and he kind of wins doesn't really feel like he's earned it because you've literally like dropped the net for tennis like don't even have to get it in the air and then like the the kid that's really good like sure he he wants to um show how good he is individually in his skill sets to the other kid to me to himself um but when it's so like lopsided in terms of um the balance of the the challenge or the game or whatever it is he's probably not going to win very often so then it just becomes like well why would i even try i've got no chance and he's just trying to make this beginner kid feel good so so yeah so in the beginning, certainly very normal. Lots of instruction, do this and, and hold it this way. And this is why wouldn't you want to do this? Um, but then I, yeah, just started to, to talk to a few people, um, started to do a bit of research into kind of, I suppose, yeah, games-based learning or constraints-led approach, which is effectively like set up an environment, barely give any instruction, and then just go, well, here's your club, here's your ball, there's the challenge, and you figure it out. And if you really can't figure it out after X time or X tries, well, then I'll kind of come along on the side and uh, advise rather than jump in in a heavy-handed instruction way. Um, and what I found was, yeah, the kids started to kind of figure the problems out. Like they started to figure out that if they held it with a strong grip for chipping, that it would always flight low. So then maybe like a bit of assistance, but then they started to get the grip a little bit more neutral, a little bit weaker and the face opened or there's lots of different solutions to it. Um, but yeah, it just becomes more of me questioning. So it's just like, well, what do you think is going to happen? And why did that ball go that way as they're kind of doing it rather than just going, here, yeah, let me tell you what to do. And they, it's just external. They're not really thinking of it themselves. Um, so 
yeah, they hit one good shot and they think they've got it. But the reality is there's uh, not really much learning going on. There's just a whole lot of teaching. Yeah. Um, and especially for grassroots staff, it's kind of like, what are they there for? Like, are they there to get better at golf? Maybe some of them want that. Some of them might just be there because their parents want them to get out of the house. And some of them have parent golfers. Um, but yeah, so now very, very different now. So it's um, creating an environment, uh, lots of kind of golf games that I've kind of put together. Um, and then I uh, just let them kind of figure it out themselves. But in saying that though, like yesterday, I have my more advanced students, which are kind of ready for handicaps, ready for junior membership. And I, I do probably do a little bit more of a traditional instruction model with them. Um, I'll still have uh, very generic golf challenges like you'd see or skills uh, at most golf clubs. Um, but they've kind of made the unconscious or conscious decision to me or to them that they want to get better at golf. So I'm probably going to try and fast track that a little bit with the stuff that they really want compared to maybe more the social kids that they're not sure if they want to take this sport seriously. I'm, I'm curious when you went down, first went down this games-based training pathway or constraints-led training, which is obviously an awesome way to, to coach, did that? Did you first come across that in the golf industry or did you have to go outside the golf coaching game to find that information to start with? I've always seen bits and pieces, like early days, like maybe early social media a little bit. Um, I know that, um, oh, I can't remember the names, but like Ian Highfield and might be like Matt, Matt someone, um, English guys that are in America, um, and they came out with game-like training. I think, yeah, game-like training. So they kind of dropped a few PDFs a year, probably 10 years ago. Um, so that was a little bit. Um, it was probably still more like skills and challenges, um, but basically just kind of, yeah, opening up to letting them figure the problems out um, rather than just instruction. Um, so there was probably that, um, but then it was more so, uh, at the start of the pandemic, um, I saw some stuff online, um, through a gentleman in America who does, um, some awesome golf games. Um, so then everyone got locked down, everyone's sitting on the computer trying to figure out what to do. And, and he, he dropped some, um, online certifications and he basically teaches you how to make kind of novel grassroots type golf games to engage the kids that aren't really there for the elite development pathway stuff. So it's kind of, um, but their, their um, environment's very different over there in the States. It's, they're not coming to coaching classes week in, week out after school during the school term. They're almost going to school until 4 or 5 p.m. I don't know, I think it's like 40 weeks of the year. And then when summer break comes along, they just, all the kids get enrolled in all of these different sports for a whole week and they go to summer camps everywhere. So when you kind of get a kid for eight hours a day for five days, they're probably not going to completely overhaul their swing. So the reality is it's probably more just like daycare, um, summer camp kind of style. So so I think based on that, he, he's created all these golf games to engage them for a five-day camp. Um, and there's still core golf skills getting being, being learned and there's probably still some some technical proficiency happening but it's like probably not going to improve too much in this short window um i've got 50 kids in front of me with four coaches 
how much private instruction is really going to be happening. Um, so I can understand where um, he's kind of done all this research and develop all these kind of novel golf games for more beginners. Um, so then, yeah, so I did some online courses, tons of good information. And then basically off the back of that, I purchased a few products, utilized them um, and started to realize that maybe I kind of want to put my own spin on them a little bit. Um, realize there's not really much in the Australian market in that space. Um, and sometimes international shipping and US dollar kind of hits you real hard over here. So it might not be viable for a lot of people to want to do it um, from that far away. Um, so then, yeah, and then I just kind of started making a few golf games and then I uh, started to like it a lot and then the kids engaged with it. So I'm onto something here and kind of does my job for me a little bit. So then I, um, yeah, just started making more and more games and researching more and more kind of game design, going to like like a tertiary education facility that does just computer programming. These are the kind of students that would develop video games and develop card games and board games because I really didn't know how to make a game, like a good game that people would engage with, whether they're golfers or not golfers, because um, all of those principles are irrelevant of, I suppose, the actual task, whether it's soccer or football or golf. It's like a game should be engaging regardless of what it is. So what are the what are those principles? Um, so then I learned from him and and then, yeah, just did more and more of my stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, it's um, very different, very, very different. Um, and... Um, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm very, very deep down the rabbit hole of <laughs> designing games um, that just happen to be on a golf course. Um, yeah, so, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm keen to come back and touch on your on your products that are out there because they are very cool. And anyone that's seen your social media knows that they're all over your social media. So we'll certainly get back, back to that. But I'm just curious, as a coach, did you see an increase in, say, player skill by them sorting it out for themselves as opposed to you telling them. So when you went from an instruction-based coaching ideal or set up to the games-based training, did you find that the kids got it if they came to the conclusion privately as opposed to you telling them? It's probably, I know, it's 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 hard to, like, quantify. Um, and I'm not a big, like, data collector kind of person i'm kind of just trying to what's happening here and now and not worry too much about the future kind of thing and just do the best job with what i've got now um i don't tend to look back on stuff too much um but what i would probably say is and this is less like probably what the industry is all about because everyone wants to be able to quantify something and they've made x amount of improvement um it's probably more just in like the experiences that these kids are having in the class right there. So it's like whether they got better in that class or a couple of classes later or finally finished a particular game or challenge or whatever it might be. Um, it's however long it did take, the sense of ownership that they have because they found the solution to the problem um, is so much different. Um, and that's that intrinsic learning. It's like that's the best form of learning based on all the research that that um, is out there. It's just because you get told what to do doesn't mean you actually like. What is it? Knowledge isn't 
knowledge isn't power or something like that. Like just because someone tells you doesn't mean that you know what you're doing. You've got to do it first and fail. And But yeah, so it's probably more just um, more ownership to the students um, because they're kind of deciding for right and for wrong. You'd probably find that, let's say if you did want to go, well, have they achieved what I want them to achieve? It probably takes a little longer because they're trialing an error by themselves to some degree. I'm, I'm, I'll be there 20% in terms of a, a coaching capacity. Um, but it might take longer, but I think like the research says, the retention of that skill or that technique is almost forever now because they have developed it and acquired it themselves rather than me going, yeah, your grip's weak. That's why you're slicing it, strengthening your grip. And all of a sudden, yeah, it's one good shot. And then they just revert back to a weak grip straight away. Um, so I think, yeah, maybe it takes a little bit longer, but then they retain it significantly longer because it's self-discovered. It, and it's, I think sometimes too, as golf coaches, we forget that it's supposed to be fun as well. So, um, a kid playing a game and trying different things has to be more enjoyable than him standing, as you said early on, in the, in the, in the sitting in the hitting bay, hitting a shot, and the coach telling him what to do. It has to be enjoyable to experiment by himself. So I think that's something that we tend to overlook as coaches sometimes as well. I don't think we overlook it. Um, the problem is we just don't ask enough questions. Um, and like... I hear that every single conversation I have with anyone within the golf industry, because like everyone knows I'm a, I'm a junior golf coach and mainly grassroots and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, it's got to be fun. It's like, well, of course, but like everything's got to be fun. Like, like my job has to be fun to a degree. Otherwise I'll start hating it. Like, but the, the, the questions we need to start asking is like, well, what does fun look like for you for golf, let's say? And then what does, fun look like for me for golf and then is that version of fun the same for a lady beginner is that same for um the club pro who's like at the back end of his career and maybe just just doesn't want to have a million shots and look bad in front of the members and then you kind of what does fun look like and even if you kind of boil it down to kids but even that can be super broad it's like i might have a seven-year-old girl who doesn't have much strength, doesn't have much club head speed and isn't necessarily that skilled. And it's like, well, what does fun look like for her playing golf? But then in the same class, I might have a nine-year-old boy that's been coming for three years who stripes it and hits it like 150 with his driver and fun might look completely different for him, even in the same class. Um, it's easy to figure out what type of fun would be for that little flusher it's like i'm just going to give him instruction or coaching um i'm going to fix his technique because then he's going to hit less bad shots or he's going to hit more good shots he's going to play better he's going to score better that's what he wants that's fun for him but for the girl it's like maybe she just rocks up because her friends are there so it's doesn't actually matter what she's doing she's having fun because her friends are there and for me like designing these games like maybe they have fun playing their favorite golf game and whether they pass or fail, it doesn't really matter. They're just doing it for the social aspect. And it's kind of really weird. It's like, I think it's just an assumption that from like adults looking down on kids. It's like, well, of course, you're going to enjoy it more if you're better at it. 
it's like it just seems every time someone has a conversation about a kid and sports it's like yeah well like don't you want to get better but like the whole golf industry and like i reckon 99.9 percent of the golf industry globally is based on predominantly male golfers somewhere between 35 and 60 that play off a 20 plus handicap almost never play to their handicap and just do it for fun with mates and then have a drink at the 19th like so the whole yeah globally golf is done people having fun for the social aspect but then as soon as you talk about kids it's like have you got any really good kids coming through i was like the first question i always ask and it's like well yeah of course i've got a couple but i don't know how good they're going to be and that could take years and how many times have we seen good players not continue because it's a pretty hard road so for me i'm kind of even though it's off topic i'm that's a positive byproduct of having a long-term program and passion with what you're doing but the reality is it's like one percent so i've got to have 100 kids for one of them to be a world beater so my solution to the problem is let's have 500 kids in my program <laughs> potentially because everything's a numbers game well, it, 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 it's a topic that's come up quite often in this podcast is as coaches, we're not building the next superstar. We're building the guys that, and girls that are going to be playing golf for the next 40 years as club golfers. They're going mm. to be the club captains. They'll be the guys that are going to be helping out with the junior program in 10 years' time. They're, they're building that that type of golfer that's going to be the person propping up the golf industry for the next 30 or 40 years. When We aren't building the next Tiger Woods, are we? Yeah, and I think it's just I think it's just that assumption again. It's just like, oh, you're going to love it if you – you're going to have more fun or enjoy it more if you're better at it. Now, like if we think about like lady beginners golfers – like as a generalization, and this is not for everyone, but it's kind of like they don't want to be really good. They just don't want to be bad. And some people realize how long the journey is to be good at something. And it's like, oh, no, that's that's too hard for me. I just don't want to look bad in front of my friends, which I think is probably um, a lot of lady beginner clinics and then when they become members um, uh, at a club. Um, and I think the kids are probably not too different to that. Um but yeah, it's just kind of um, just understanding that we will get all those things, elite players, um, as a byproduct of just focusing on the front end, which is can we see as many people as possible because everything's a numbers game and golf is a business and my junior program is a business. Um, and just allow people a bit more of a maybe of a softer entry into it um less heavy-handed and they kind of figure it out themselves a little bit um and then we might have less dropout whatever the rate is especially with kids we might have less dropout because we're not forcing people into a particular pigeonhole of elite players or whatever's left within the industry um but yeah it's kind of interesting there's a lot of focus on yeah well especially in the kids creating um uh, creating stars for them to look up to. And yeah. I know that's a big thing in Australia because that, that is a potential motivator. Like, do you want to be as good as, like I come from Mount Lawley, so Hannah Green's from Mount Lawley. So it's like Hannah Green. It's like 
okay, other sports have all of these stars, LeBron James and Messi and AFL, I don't know who's, Dusty Martin and um, I'm not a big AFL guy, um, Buddy Franklin. Um, but it's a bit different. Like you still got to do those things, I think. You can't have no one for people to look up to, but I think that can't be the only thing that you do because the reality is that's like one percenters, less than one percenters. And because we don't really have eyeballs on screens like AFL does, we're never going to have the, the impact that these stars have from other sports. So you've still got to do it. Um, but I think we would really be better off spending more time and energy into, yeah, like I suppose, yeah, what I've kind of done. It's like, well, what's fun for kids? And then understanding your customer a little bit more, like I'm not going to make a program about how I want the program to be. I want to make a program for how my customers want the program to a degree. Um, and then just continue to make that better and continue to focus on what they want. Um, and then eventually they'll funnel through and then you'll have these little world beaters because that's just a byproduct of all of those good things. But you'll also have a ton of people playing golf at the front end, probably in a social capacity. So it actually is a win-win. But yeah, it's. Um, I think we're just focusing in the wrong areas potentially. So explain to me what your programs look like now. So it sounds like there's been a huge, huge shift and plenty of um, behind-the-scenes work to get your programs to where they are now as opposed to how they started out. So explain to me or talk to me about what your programs look like now. Yeah, so it probably doesn't look too dissimilar to anyone else's. Maybe the stuff in them is a little bit more comprehensive, um, a little bit more value-packed and colourful, and but it... I do, I do a free class every single week, just a 45-minute class at a peak time that I know is going to be good for, for young families. So Saturday morning, kind of 8.30 in the morning, I do a free class each and every week. Um, every now and again, the weather cancels it, uh, which is fine. Um, and I still do it on the school holidays, even though I'm not coaching. So I'll go in for one class, a free class. And at one stage, I had staff that I was paying and I buy prizes for this class. So it literally costs me to run this class and everyone else is like mate why do you do it your academy's pumping and i'm like yeah but these are the kids that try it and then fill the classes next term when some of the kids have a break or don't want to do golf anymore so i'm always full and always adding more classes um, and then hiring more staff to support me while i'm doing that because of this free class so last saturday i had 35 kids come to this free class just barriers for entry it's like Coaching costs a lot, clubs cost a lot. Uh, I'm not sure if my child likes this sport yet. So I'll just get rid of all of those three and it's free and I have the clubs um, and they can try it, I don't know, five times, 50 times. I don't really care. I'm going to be there anyway. And more is always better than less because it makes it look better um, rather than one kid turning up. Um, and then I just have all of these natural conversations with the parents and the kids and, oh, I really like this and it's good we got to try it. Oh, he doesn't like it. What do you think? I'm like, oh, just keep trying the free class and if he doesn't really like it, it's all good. Just, just try something else because I'm sure a million people have had someone come to sign up online, never seen them before, come to the first kid's class and they're a nightmare. Or that you've, they've jumped into the wrong class and you've got to like figure out where to put them in and there's no space or that just doesn't fit. So at least me, it allows me to kind of 
mitigate that a little bit. And it's like, oh, this would be the best class for you because I've actually seen them and had the conversation with them rather than like a, a dry lead from some social media post. Um, so then, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, straight after that class, I go back to back with three to six-year-old classes, so age, uh, not necessarily skill. Um, so most of the kids are four, five, and six years old, 45-minute class, a lot of safety stuff, just basic concepts. I've created a little golf character, Chip the Dog, which I um, – a little little cartoon that I laminate um, and put it on little, uh, a little A4 binder, and then we have one golf concept that we're focusing on. So it might be thumbs point down at the start or thumbs on the top to make sure that it's going to give them – a functional grip that allows them to hinge and create clubhead speed. I'm not going to say all those things. I just go, well, the dog's got a picture of his thumbs on the top of the grip, so let's just copy that. Um, but just saying it in a way that they can kind of digest for like a five-year-old. Um, so I do that, and then I have um, seven to 11 years old, so a little bit older. I mix the boys and the girls. Um, I used to do all-girls classes, but at a large scale, it doesn't work. Um, for two reasons. Um, the first one is all of the parents of a or a girl wants them to go in the girls' class and I had like 25 girls registered for one class and then the class before and the class after was undersubscribed. So then I was paying staff to help me manage this one class and the other classes were undersubscribed. So it was actually costing me to run these classes. Um, and then the other thing as well is it doesn't actually give people a lot of choices of days and times that suit them. You're like, well, yeah, we've got a girls' class and you're not going to be annoyed by the boys and all of these advantages that we're getting told, especially in Australia, about um, kind of girls-only classes. Um, but then it's like, oh, Monday, 4 o'clock is the only girls' class we have because most academies aren't going to have large-scale numbers, so they're only going to have one class available. So if that Monday, 4 o'clock doesn't suit someone, they're either going to have to bend over backwards or they can't come because she's already committed to something else. So it's there's pros and cons to anything. Um, but then, yeah, 7 to 11-year-olds, mixed genders and skill levels, where I'm pretty much just playing all of those golf games um, for the whole class, a little bit of instruction with some golf subjects that I've kind of slapped together. Um, and then, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, you might have a 9-year-old that has been coming for a couple of years and you can either see it or they've mentioned it to you or the parents have mentioned it to you they're kind of like uh they don't really engage much with these kind of novel golf games anymore you can tell they really care about getting better at the sport in its traditional format so then i just kind of have that natural conversation where it's like the next phase or the next level is longer class time primarily instruction where we're going to be improving technique talking about flop shots over bunkers actually hitting greenside bunker shots because they can comprehend it and actually do it in a safe way. And then they get on the golf course five times in the in the quarter to transfer their stuff. Um, and then I've just opened up a really uh, a more advanced class starting next next term where it's exclusive to kids with handicaps of 10 or less, uh, junior members, um, two-hour classes, private lessons included in that. Um, so, but yeah, four years ago, I it was a bit of a one one class. Like I... It was new and everything was a bit of a mix and I couldn't segregate ages and skills because I didn't have all of these students. Um, so like anything, I think you've just got to let it evolve and adapt um, as it starts to fill up a little bit um, and change stuff. Um, 
I think people with the mindset that they don't want to change, like it gets perfect and then they don't want to change it because it's perfect, um, which kind of seems good in theory. But the reality is like if you think about the customers from their perspective, they could have been in the system for like four years and they don't know the program's perfect. They've got no point of reference. They just know your program. They don't know that the one down the road doesn't offer all of these things that you offer. All they see is he hasn't changed it in four years and he's probably increased his prices as he's gone because of inflation and just meeting up with demand and things like that. So the perception sometimes is like, oh, it's not actually getting better. So having like a raw program in the beginning is sometimes the best thing because it's only going to get better. Um, And now I'm changing it all the time within reason, of course, but just adding value. So then it's just providing more value back to the, the kids and the students and the parents and stuff. So, so yeah, it, I think, yeah, it looks very similar. It's just, there's probably more classes, maybe a little bit more segregation and maybe a little bit more inclusions, bag tags and academy caps and golf games. But yeah, it's not really much different to what is down the road. So how quickly did it grow? I'm curious. And then how did you grow it? Um, because obviously the, traditional golf club has a couple of classes as you said but you've got essentially full-time junior academy Mm. going um how did you grow it and yeah how quickly did it grow yeah so i started just as a contractor um and i think it was just before the the christmas break um so then i basically jumped straight in and did that free class um on the holidays i'd come in and do that free class and i can't remember how i was getting how many students or or customers, we even say, um, coming to that. But I know when I launched the first term uh, in the first quarter, I had 40 students straight away. Um, and I think that was a lot of it just based on the free class. I'd already built relationships with the students. I'd already built relationships with the parents. So for them to to know what to expect in the program um, wasn't a big leap. Um, and a good thing about having kind of that that free class as well you've kind of got to give, you've got to be good. Like it's got to attract people. Like it can't just be like, oh yeah, like here's a free class. I'm going to give you the bare minimum. Um, Because you might not attract as many people, but then you've also got to be very careful on the other side of the spectrum. Like if you make it too good and you give all this value in this free class, then why would someone want to start paying for something they get for free? So it's kind of always this balancing act um so i'm always trying to showcase the next level after this free class is 10 times better or it includes this um because otherwise yeah like i see it all the time with especially over here in wa they someone might have a club or a facility or a coach that doesn't have a, a junior program so they want to launch one so they run a five-week trial program and it's probably subsidized by the governing body or subsidized by the club, which in theory sounds good. And the coach gets his hourly rate, which in theory sounds good because he's getting paid regardless of who turns up or not. But then all of a sudden, it's exactly what you would probably expect for the next round of five lessons. So then all of a sudden, because the cost of the club, they're probably not going to want to do it again because the coach will only get exactly what he got just from a different place from the next round of five. And because the customer is probably going to expect the exact same thing in the next round of five, unless it's really, 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 really good, why would they sign up? 
like for me, it's a bit of a no-brainer. It's like, I got it for free. Why would I pay again, mate? So, and because it's only a one-off, it's kind of like people have to make that kind of, that conscious, conscious decision. So for me, I'm doing a free one every single week and I'm kind of making it exciting and engaging, but I'm always holding back better stuff so that people are more inclined. And the biggest one as well is, like I had 35 kids last Saturday. That can be overwhelming for some people and some kids. So then straight away, it's like, well, when you start paying, it's like maximum of 10 kids. They're like, oh, thankfully, I wasn't sure <laughs> if every class had 40 kids. I was like, no, no, this is a free-for-all and everyone can come as much as they want. But when you're actually paying, like, of course, the quality control is going to be there. Um, so sometimes, yeah, it being really good at the front end is awesome, but also sometimes it being not as good can be a good thing as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's hard to find that balance, isn't it? Because you, you, you get you, you don't want to give away all your secrets early on. Yeah. Um, and especially if, if they aren't paying as well, you want to make yeah, sure yeah, you, yeah. You, you keep something back for when they do actually start giving you some money for it. So I'm curious about your products as well because you've got some pretty cool products out there. And um, so this will kind of head down that path about because you, you kind of sell your stuff to other coaches as well and um, help them set up their own kind of coaching programs too, don't you? Is that kind of where, yes, you are giving coaching, but you are kind of helping other pros set up junior programs as well. So talk me through some of those those cool products that we see. We see some um some of your game stuff you've built out there floating around so yeah i'm curious about how you set up that side of your coaching business yeah so it is two parts um and i'm the kind of person that like i hate doing things more than once like if i can do it once and do it properly and then like like a a draft email like why would i write the same email over and over again with a slight variation <laughs> And sure, you don't want to have a super generic email that people just know that you copied and pasted, but you've got to do that to save time and energy. And and sometimes you write this perfect email, you're like, if I don't bottle this, like I don't want to have to do that again. So you just copy it and put it in your draft box. And I've probably got 150 draft emails sitting in there with all the hyperlinks to, to save me more time and energy. So this is kind of no different. I'm kind of learning from a lot of the big hitters in America that do a really good job in terms of providing tools to, to coaches over there and it's like large scale in the states um and so then all of a sudden i started creating all of these resources for my academy um so then i'm like well why would i expect someone else to do everything that i've done and spent two years making advertising documents and uh designing 11 golf subjects that talk about aim and setup and uh how the body should move in a way that the kids can digest. So then if I make them one, if I make it once, and as long as I make it transferable through a membership site and downloading from a website anywhere around the world, um, that side of the business in terms of the, the programming resources and advertising material and, and creating a, a five-minute video about managing class sizes or managing student behavior, um, stuff that... A school teacher might know, but a golf coach that isn't exposed to that might not know about. So you just click on a five-minute video within the website. It just obviously this is my perspective on everything, um, but then it's like I would manage uh, the behaviour of students this way, um, and they try that and see if it works. So, um, so yeah. So I just I had to do all of it for my academy. So then as I'm doing it, knowing that I've used similar type um, services in the past from other places, 
uh, I knew that I could, um, I suppose, franchise it, if you want to call it that. Um, so then, yeah, over the last probably three years, I've been doing that and compiling all these resources, um, but always at the front end when I make something, making sure that it's transferable across every facility, um, but also not trying to promote my brand as I do it. Um, kind of my brand becomes the brand of the facility. My company's Junior Golf Academy, and at the top of the logo, I put Joondla. Uh, and then when I start up another academy, it'll have the name of that academy at the top. It's not me as a person, even though I'm conducting all the classes, because I may want someone to run the academy for me in the future when I'm busy, hopefully, supporting the country with with products and, and resources in this space. Um, so providing, yeah, I just know that it's taken me a long time and I know that I'm one of not many that is willing to do it. Um, you only have to look at maybe the history across Australia and how many times has maybe some of the PGA members tried to do this at a national level and I, I, don't, I don't see too many. Um, and anyone that has tried to do it probably yeah, not continuing to do it because it is a hard slog, um, but especially in the digital area now, uh, era now where it's so easy to transfer information. It's just monthly subscription at a super low cost and you get all the resources at your own at your own um, disclosure and you can view them whenever you want. Um, so that side's not really any anything new. Um, maybe just a bit more comprehensive. Like, as I mentioned, I'm about to do a um, very, very advanced class in my academy. So it's forcing me to create all these resources or documents to provide to my students. So then all I do is just make them customizable. And then all of a sudden I'm providing more and more resources to the membership side of it. So rather than just being about grassroots, because um, that's a bit one dimensional, it can't just be about one thing. If a coach wants some resources for three to six year olds, seven to 11 year olds, whether they're competitive or social, and then as they transfer to junior membership, I even have documents for onboarding kids for junior membership. You just change the front end that has your facility on it. And all of a sudden you add a few pictures and, and things that are relevant to you guys. And then it's a, a resource that someone at the club doesn't have to go and spend time and energy to do it. Um, and as you mentioned about the golf games, um, those are supposed to be more products that I'm selling um, either in combination with the membership side or independent of them if someone wants some golf games to engage their students. So all the research I've done on games-based learning and designing games that aren't necessarily specific to golf, um, I have to learn about well, what are the different types of fun. Um, and in a recent webinar that I did for the PGA, it's this there's lots, but there's a minimum eight types of fun. So challenge is a version of fun, and that's the most obvious one. Everyone loves golf because it's challenging. Everyone loves golf because the pins are in different positions and the wind's off the left one day and off the right the next, and the golf course is uh, ever-changing and challenging. Uh, that's always the, also the frustration of the sport as well, but that is, I think, the main derivative of fun for almost every player of golf. Um, but then you look at people going to top golf. And you look at people doing mini golf and now simulator golf and it's kind of like it's not the same like they can't be having fun the same way because it's a different version of the sport so how are they having fun and definitely like holy moly and mini putts it's more novel it's um um they're having fun through um, the camaraderie of doing it with mum and dad 
And because the kid can kind of win at mini golf because it's just putting, um, all of a sudden, it's not just the challenge of the sport, it's it's a couple of other facets. So I've just done all this research now over the last couple of years as to why do people play Uno? Why do people love Monopoly? Why do people hate Monopoly in the same sense? Like you can have five people playing Monopoly and three of them are loving it, not just because they're winning, but because of the strategies applied to the game. Like, oh yeah, I'm not going to buy this one now. I'll buy it in four moves when he lands on it and I get four times as much rent out of him. Um, why why do people play, why do kids play these video games and they love this video game but hate that video game? Um, and you're just kind of breaking it down. Um, and that's what the, I suppose, the game industry does all the time. They're always breaking down why something works, uh, why doesn't it work. They're looking at their players or customers um, and and now they can start collecting the data on who bought the game and how long do they play for and um, at certain points in the game, why did they stop playing or continue to play? And that's probably more relevant to like mobile apps. <laughs> the amount of data, the customer research that they would have on their, their playtime and how many downloads and just um, the purchases through the in-app thing, like on Candy Crush. It's kind of like just mind-blowing. But then, yeah, I look at golf and it's like, this is golf and take it or leave it. And then the governing body kind of goes, well, you can play for a lifetime. And there's all these mental health benefits post COVID and you get outside and you're not sitting on screens and all of these things are relevant. They're all, they're all accurate, but you can't make someone love something for the same reasons that you love something. Um, and so, yeah, I just, just look at the, the, the game, game industry with a, no matter what it is, video games or board games or, or uh, card games. And it's just, let's break it down and let's almost for me, I'm trying to create a better version of the sport for a specific target demographic, which is five to 12 years old, more or less, and, and more social beginners. Cause we've got all the other stuff covered. Like if a kid wants to get good at golf, we're good. We've got TrackMan now and the kid can get, we got, we just got top tracer at the range and some of the kids are frothing over that. It's like <laughs> go crazy with that. But the six year old that can't get the ball in the air, top tracer has no relevancy to him. Um, so yeah, so I've kind of, created all these golf game products um, to basically um, engage the students more. So a pool noodle is a pool noodle. No matter how much you say it's a snake or a mountain for the kid to climb, <laughs> it's a friggin' pool noodle. And they know it. And I, the way I look at it is, is if, if, if I can have a obstruction there that's a wall and it's got a picture of a snake on it, let's say, well, then they don't really have to imagine it. There's a picture of a snake. And then whatever the game might be, I think they're going to be like aesthetically attracted and engaged in the game because they don't have to imagine it. It's like, it's that's an actual snake. Um, and then the theme of the game, which would be, yeah, like it's about snakes. Well, maybe a kid loves snakes. And the easy one for a lot of kids is dinosaurs. So I haven't made a dinosaur-themed game yet, but every like six-year-old boy loves dinosaurs, more or less. So it's like if I make a game about dinosaurs, I'm probably going to attract 
a particular student that may not have wanted to do golf before. Um, and then with another layer on top of that, like if the game's not engaging for beginners and skilled players and somehow mitigates the best player winning every single time, it's just a picture of a dinosaur at a golf course. So if I can like add some randomness into the game where before their turn, like I've got a putting game where before they turn, they have to roll the dice and it's a big like 30 centimeter dice made of plastic material that's pretty hard wearing. And they just pick up this big dice and roll it on the putting green and it has six strokes or five strokes or four strokes, three, two, one, just like a six sided dice. And it basically predetermines how many putts they will get at the target. Um, and the reason you do that is what stops the better player winning every single time because the better player will do it in two to three putts. But if they're forced to do it in one putt through the luck of the dice roll, he may get frustrated, but that's just, that's that's the game. Like, I don't make the rules, mate. That's just the game. The reality, <laughs> the reality is I make all the rules because I'm designing the games. Um, but that's what like a constraints-based uh, approach is. It's like, it's actually designed by the designer, and in my case, maybe the game designer, to specifically make players get to a point and have to do something different to pass. So from a golf context, so you probably got to change clubs to get it over that pool noodle. But it wouldn't be a pool noodle. It would be the picture of a building. And I've got a picture of a building with firefighters and people in a burning building and they've got to hit it higher and higher and higher to knock out the flames and save the burning building. Um, but if you just add the right, uh, and they're called game mechanics, so just certain things that make the game play a certain way, like a roll of the dice or um, picking up a card like on Monopoly, it's like a chance card. It's actually exciting because you don't know what you're going to get where traditional golf doesn't really have any of that. Am I going to hit a good shot or am I going to shank it? Like maybe that's kind of like a bit of like randomness in the sport. Um, and yeah, we, we love golf because the best player always wins. Like the Masters is about to happen. The best player will always win a 72-hole stroke play event. Last week we saw the match play and they're all great players, of course, but the number one player in the world didn't win it because match plays are it's a bit more of a lucky version of the sport. Like you can just get someone that shoots seven under on the day who's the 60th best player in the world and he beats John Rahm. And John Rahm still played awesome. He played five under, got done two and one or whatever it may be across 72 hole stroke play. John Rahm would probably do that every single day and shoot 20 under and beat everyone. But people love match play for a slightly different reason. So bottling all of these things that I've got, all of a sudden you've got like 50 different golf games that are, different themes um, some are more novel than others some are more lucky than others some are built for good kids because good kids don't want to roll a dice and have their performance based on something they can't control um, and then at the back end of that just allows me to provide more options for these for these kids so a typical kind of grassroots class for me would be I'd have seven or eight putting games set up and it's pretty eye-catching um, for the kids and the parents and other people that might see me doing a class while I'm there and a kid might be on the driving range and, oh, that looks cool, I might want to do that rather than just lining everyone up on the driving range, um, doing instruction. Uh, and then I might have seven or eight hitting games and I just give them the opportunity to try whatever game they want. So I'm not going to... Uh, what I used to do was probably like what most people do is they have one or two of their like best 
drills or challenges and the kids always love those ones and that's not it's not not true um but anyone that does the same thing over and over again every class for 10 weeks is probably going to get bored of it now no matter how good it is so just by adding more variety and giving them the opportunity to play whatever game they want with whoever they want um whenever they want once again is just giving them more ownership of well how am i going to participate at golf today and they are getting better at golf but it doesn't look like it no, that's really cool i think we've got a whole different whole separate podcast episode talking yeah. about enjoyment in golf and coaching and and how you can set it up properly so i think well i've got that written down there now so i think we'll yeah. have to get you back at some point to talk yeah, about definitely. that in a bit more depth but um yeah no it is it's a really cool topic and there's so many so many branches you can go down in that path in that pathway to get um to the correct achievement for those kids playing the sport but that's um that's really cool yeah i think it's um i just see like like on the same thing it's like oh it's got to be fun like yeah obviously but then it's like who's asking the question and then who are they asking the question to and what I just see in the industry, certainly in Australia, is golf pros talking to golf pros about golf. It's like, yeah, but you're asking someone that basically has the same knowledge and more or less the same experience as you. So you're probably not really going to get much out of it. And sure, there's guys that specialize. Uh, like, obviously, I specialize. But I specialize because I've gone down a completely different rabbit hole not related to golf whatsoever. So I'm designing golf. I'm designing games that just happen to be applied to golf. But everything else is more or less the same, like long-term player pathway and different price points and different segregations of ages and skills. That's all exactly the same. Um, but it's just the golf games and just maybe keeping them hooked or dangling that carrot for a little bit longer. Um, and it's just, yeah, customer, uh, yeah, researching my customer. And like my customer is grassroots kids and what do they want? So I have the music pumping because they want to choose a weird song that they don't get to play at home. So, so yeah, I just see a lot of, yeah, golf professionals talking to golf professionals. And I think you can get better at teaching golf. Uh, and I suppose this is teaching golf, but then it's like um, sometimes like, yeah, like a, the big fad now is kind of ground reaction force stuff. And obviously everyone's, because um, the world long drivers are getting all these clubbed speeds like crazy on social media and long drives cool again. And, then the, the, the sidestep from there is high-level elite coaches learning more about um, <clears throat> how the pressure trace is changing, the, how the body moves and maintaining side tilt and people are hitting it better and the tour is going towards more distance off the tee and, and all of those things are cool and sexy, like definitely. Um, and I can maybe appreciate that teaching grassroots golf isn't as cool and sexy, but I suppose what's what's moving the needle more? Like making someone a little bit better at golf that's already half decent at golf, scratch player at the club? And like, sure, like I'm not going to tell anyone to do something they're not passionate about and everyone's got their own little niche. But in terms of if everyone talks about growing the game and everyone talks about trying to get as many bums on seats as possible like junior golf and grassroots golf is the easiest one to move the needle substantially. But 
let's maybe not keep talking to golf coaches about golf. Let's like, okay, we'll go talk to school teachers about how to manage kids better and go talk to, yeah, early childhood educators about how do you deal with, I don't know, three to six-year-olds and then maybe look at what other sports are doing to capture the engagement for grassroots golf. I don't know, what, what it might be. But, yeah, just start asking questions from different people and like anything, you just go, well, that was good and that was no good and I'll use that and I won't use that. And then you kind of, rather than just everyone asking the same questions to the same people. It makes so much sense. I think that's that's great advice. Um, okay, how do you deal, and this is kind of a generic question I ask all junior coaches or anyone that's come on with a, with a junior twist, how do you deal with the parents? Do you get any pushback from the parents about how you've set the programs up and how do you deal with that? Um, I actually don't really get almost any. Uh, but the reason why is because I'm definitely in more of a social fun demographic. Um, so when something is less serious, like the parents aren't expecting handicap drops and expecting performance in tournaments, uh, I, I may start to get that over the next couple of years as the kids have progressed and now I'm doing more advanced classes, classes and and private lessons and more of the students are playing in the junior tournaments locally. Um, so there may have been a few conversations here and there. Um, but because 90% of the kids that are coming are young, fun and social, it's it's really just, um, yeah, the level of expectation isn't there. Um, but like anything, I think if you're getting those questions, um, I might get them about what's the program about. And I'm just, I suppose my would be um, golf's hard, the kids probably won't get the club head speed and the physical strength until they're probably 10 plus to be able to good, get a good solid ball flight. So it's kind of like, let's just, yeah, get them engaged in the sport in a more social way. And these games are obviously improving their techniques and their, their skills um, in a less obvious way. Um, and then when they start to make that conscious or unconscious decision that they want to be better at the sport, well, then we kind of move them up through the phases and, um, yeah, it's kind of um, it's always a case by case basis. It's pretty hard. Like I thought, every coach is very different. They're more the same than different, but but um, it depends on what your philosophies are. It depends on what the ethos of your academy is about. Um, and then you've just got to yeah have a honest conversation with the person in front of you um, with their best interest at heart. I suppose. Makes sense. Makes sense. So let's throw the, the standard five questions at you that mm. comes for all the guests that come on, on the podcast here. So what um, would you say to a young coach starting out? What tips would you have for them? How to get started in this golf industry? Yeah, so we, we said it before, just try lots of different things. Like even within coaching, it's pretty broad, like elite. Like I think everyone wants to be like a tour coach, uh, but most people realize it's, it's pretty uh, – can be fruitless and, and it's hard to get into, but but there would be uh, tour coaching and then there's uh, maybe state level elite coaching and then there's going to be private instruction at your facility and then there's going to be groups and then there's going to be kids. Um, so even that's pretty broad and they're all very different about who you're dealing with and what they want out of the experience. Um, so yeah, so just try lots of different things um, and yeah, whether you find exactly what you like straight away or like I said, Maybe you just find what you don't like and eventually what's left and then you start to do more of that and get good at it and then you actually really start to like it. Um, but I would use 
yeah, that is a bit of a segue with the whole kind of junior golf. I know grassroots golf gets a bit of a stigma that it's just daycare. Um, and I think there is an element of that, of course, because like you're dealing with young kids and they can't really control their emotions like adults can. And you can't really have super in-depth conversations about technical concepts with them. Um, but the flip side is, well, it's not very serious and you can kind of make a lot of mistakes as a coach because you may not know exactly all the ins and outs of P1 to P10 and ground reaction forces and you're kind of learning them as you're going along. Um, but with the group coaching model, you can start to make more per hour than you would an in individual. Um, and then all of a sudden, like, yeah, I can make a full-time income only working part-time. Um, so whether I absolutely love junior coaching or not, maybe you enjoy it because it allows you the flexibility to do other things. So maybe don't just yeah listen to what everyone's saying about a particular aspect of the industry and kind of figure it out for yourself. And, and you never know, you might actually get good at it and then enjoy being good at it or enjoy that it allows you the ability to not have a horrific golf industry work-life balance <laughs> <laughs> no, that's well, good most of it yep i i, I like that stuff i like that so how about for golfers advice for golfers out there um oh geez like what do you what do you mean just like recreational golfers yeah just just in general for those those because obviously this this podcast is aimed more at coaches yeah. but there is there there is golfers tuning in so i'm curious yeah. what you would say to them yeah, so well, probably a little bit technical, but first you've got to have the right concept of what you're trying to do. Um, if you've got the wrong concept, like the, the age-old one with golf is you see people on the driving range and they're hanging on their back foot. So that would be their technique. That's like how they do what they do. But because their initial concept, I've got to make sure this iron is swinging up into the ball to lift the ball in the air, their technique is back foot. They're not transferring their weight into their front foot. Therefore, they don't have um, good bottom of swing or low point control or they're not hitting the ball first in the ground after. Um, and then because of that, the final component is the skill. How well are you doing at what you're trying to achieve or the task? So they're hitting the ground first or they're topping it or they're thinning it or they're slicing it because of the par. So if you've got the right concept of what you're trying to achieve, then you're going to have the chance to have a reasonable or functional technique, which would be how you do what you do, how your body move and how you swing the club. And then the final component is the skill level. How well do you do all of those individual things, whether it be at the right distance or the center of the face. So yeah, in its essence, it's pretty simple. It's just concepts, techniques, and skills. And that's applied to everything, not just golf. Um, but make sure you get the first one to then have a chance at the second one to then have a chance to be half decent at the third one. That makes sense. Don't try and skip steps, basically, to start there <laughs> yeah. and have that plan going through. So, no, that yeah. makes makes a whole lot of sense. Um, okay, you can answer this one either or or both parts of the question or choose a part. So where do you see yourself or coaching in general in five years' time? Uh, I hope these are one and the same, uh, but where I would like to see me in five years' time um another academy within western australia probably at the scale of the one i'm i'm at now um a couple of staff under me under my company um either supporting me or delivering classes 
independently to allow me the freedom to be able to continue to develop the the, the services and products that I'm trying to help with um, other golf coaches and, and facilities, not just in Australia, but hopefully globally. Um, but yeah, yeah, traveling around Australia, going internationally and kind of, yeah, supporting the golf industry in a space that is um, overlooked and, and hard to get going and, and hard to know what to do and, and hard to know that it can be pretty fruitful and rewarding because um, there probably isn't a whole lot of people doing like ridiculous large-scale jobs um, for people to kind of monkey see, monkey do. So, so yeah, hopefully um, a pretty rock-solid business and academy back in, in Perth to allow me the flexibility to, um, yeah, help more people at a larger scale. Changing the world of junior golf sounds good. We hope. We hope. Awesome, mate. Sounds awesome. I'll be on. I'll be on the um, on the trail as well with you. That sounds. That sounds great. I need to get you putting putting into a mole in the hole. <laughs> it sounds good. <laughs> okay, so is there anything you would change in your career so far? If you had the choice to go back or the chance to go back and change something, is there anything that you would do differently? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm not really the kind of person that has many regrets because I don't know. Sometimes you think you do the right right thing and it ends up being the wrong thing and sometimes you do something you, you don't think you're supposed to and it actually works out for the best. Um, so, oh, no, no, not really. Like maybe like starting earlier, learning about games earlier, but then like I think everything happens for a reason at a specific time and timing is literally everything. So, uh, no, no, I wouldn't probably change anything. No, that's fair enough. I've got no issue good with that. Bad. Yeah, no, that's all good. That's all good. Um, okay, so this is this is for the people tuning in, but also personally. Um, sources of information. Are you, are you a podcaster person? Are you a, a website person? Give me some good sources of learning. Uh, so, yeah, like I would, um, if it's specifically about junior golf, I would just, um, the first one would be like, well, yeah, if you're a parent or if you're a golf coach, it would be, um, finding someone that's doing a really good job in your area and just shadowing or go, uh, yeah, shadowing them and seeing what they do for good and for bad. Um, then it would be, yeah, just social media is super easy. You might, sure, it's not going to give you the full picture of what what's going on, but um, who's got good games or yeah, thing or tools that they're utilizing to to seem like they're having success. Um, and then yeah, obviously coaching summits and things like that. Um, but like I mentioned before, yeah, just starting to maybe look in other spaces, not just in golf and yeah, like what, what engages someone like learning about why people engage in something socially or educationally, um, learning about, like, I know, yeah, Michael Hebron over in the States is all about how people learn. So it's like, he's obviously going a deep dive and it's like, well, how do people learn? And then I'll just apply that to golf rather than just go, I'm, I'm golf. I know golf and I'll teach people golf and irrelevant of how they learn or don't learn. So I think that, yeah, just online and just watching people that seem to be doing a really good job or are doing a really good job. Um, And then, yeah, I think it's an element of like, yeah, just copy and paste. I like that part, but I maybe don't like that part. And then eventually you might have 10 different things from 10 different places and then you've got this, it's not really the mashup, um, but it's just maybe your version of... uh, your best product or program. No, that's cool. I think it's, it's it's easy as as coaches to get stuck in your own little pathway and stuck in your own little tunnel. This is 
I'm going to be going down sources of information from golf, going talk, only talking to golf coaches, only talking to, but as you said, all through the podcast, talking to teachers, talking to people inside of that junior space and art coaches can give you some really good insights into how to improve your own program. So and that's really cool. Yeah, and I suppose, yeah, like at the, the back end of this, it's like everyone's going to do things for different reasons. And it's not like one person's reason is right or wrong. It's just why they choose to do it. Um, and what I mean by that is I think the reason, and I'm not saying they're, they're good or bad, it's just not what I would do, um, but how I kind of see a lot of junior programs, especially in, let's say, Australia, well, as I mentioned before, I'm a golf professional. I enjoy golf in the traditional format and the challenge of it. So then most probably that coach is going to create a program around that because they assume everyone else wants that. Um and then because of that, you're probably going to be producing a lot of probably high-performing junior players. Um, but then it's kind of like, yeah, are we missing Are we missing a big chunk of the market and potential people? Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, you don't have to be just this one thing. Sometimes you can be a little bit of everything as well, even while still kind of specialising. Okay, mate, give me some plugs. Give me some things we can where people can yeah. find you. Give me some links. Give me some social media handles so we can put these in the show notes. Yeah, so website, uh, www.juniorgolfacademy.co, so not .com. Probably cost way too much money for that domain name. Uh, so .co. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, uh, uh, plenty on Instagram, um, mainly because of just, uh, I suppose, the short video clips and stuff like that so i have my own personal one from when i used to do kind of private coaching so axel donaldson golf um but then i have my kind of company's one so juniorgolfacademy.co the instagram handle for that um and as you mentioned there's a lot, lot of the just trying to kind of promote some of the, the golf games in like five second kind of clickbaity engaging um tiktok style um videos um but yeah, and then I kind of tend to do a bit, yeah, a few webinars and stuff and, and some podcasts in the past. But but yeah, definitely website, um, definitely uh, I can provide my yeah, contact number and email address if you want to as well. But um, yeah, definitely through Instagram and, and Facebook Messenger is always pretty easy, especially at a global scale as well. Awesome, mate. I'll put the links in the show notes, everyone, so they can get in touch if they want to keep the conversation going because I think you've got a whole lot of good information to share. You've been extremely generous with your time today. I've kept you for way, way, way too long and it could have gone twice the time, I think, without too many issues. So um, I think we'll get you back as more of a, a guest that's going to keep popping up as we talk about junior topics as we go through. If you're keen to do something like that, that'd be awesome to get you onto yeah. that. Yes, please. No, that'd be awesome. But, mate, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming in and chatting to me. And um, I hope everyone enjoys this episode because it's really, really cool. And, um, yeah, mate, again, I just appreciate you spending so much time talking to us. Yeah, no, I, I, um, thanks, thanks for the opportunity.